Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Hello, I'm Scott Soshnick. And I'm Evan Novi-Williams, and you're listening to the highest podcast in all the land, The Sportacast. Sportascotacast. I love it. I love it. And we have a very special guest. We're going to pump him up. Mike McCann. Not only did he handle this story for Sportico, but not long ago, he also testified before the U.S. Senate. So if you need a go-to source on the implications of this decision, you went to the right place. Mike, thanks for joining us. You got it, Scott. Thanks for having me. I mean, you really didn't have a choice, right? You weren't, you weren't about to say no to the Sportacast, <laughs> would you? No, never, ever. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, so Mike, your story starts with like in a landmark. Give it, how big is this? What, what are we talking about here? It's, it's huge, Scott, because this is the Supreme Court saying the NCAA and all of its members, whenever they agree to something, including rules constraining what college athletes can get paid, they're subject to antitrust law. So it opens the door for other lawsuits brought by athletes, maybe even high school athletes who say, all of these rules don't make sense. They're really anti-competitive because in a free market, we would be able to get more from schools. That's not what the court, the court didn't go there. The court only focused on academic related stuff, but it opens the door for a world of hurt for the NCAA. Now, the most telling part for me, Mr. McCann, is that there's nine members of the court for a reason because you don't want to tie, right? So you often see five, four long ideological lines. This wasn't five, four. This wasn't six, three. This wasn't 7-2. This wasn't 8-1. 9-0 unanimous decision. How often do we get unanimous decisions and what should the NCAA take away from that? So they, they come often in cases that are just not typically as controversial as this one. Usually in cases of this stature, we see a divided court. They, they do happen and they're often not written about, but in cases of this magnitude, I think it's fairly uncommon. And especially with this court, which, as we know, has some very conservative and very liberal justices on it, for them to all find what the NCAA was saying to be totally unpersuasive, that's got to be discouraging for the NCAA. And Scott, the NCAA brought this case. They didn't have to appeal the loss out in California. They're the ones that brought the Supreme Court onto this. So that was a tactical decision that I'm sure they're regretting. Michael, one of the things I always have to remind myself, uh, particularly around around this case, but other ones as well, the Supreme Court ruling. Wait, hold from on, today, Novi Williams. Hold on, Novi Williams. You called him Michael. I asked him at the start, how does he prefer it? And, and you went with the Michael. That's what his mother calls him. This is Mike McCanda. <laughs> you can call him okay. whatever you want. Just say that guy. <laughs> that guy. Mike, um, the, the ruling today, <laughs> that guy it, does not, it does not mean that the that schools need to do anything. In fact, this is essentially telling the NCAA it can't prevent its schools from offering these educational benefits to athletes, but it does not force those schools to offer them. Uh, and the truth is that schools could just continue to not offer them 
But the fact is that that's not going to happen, right? There's this weird kind of fallacy, logical fallacy built in here, which is that now it is up to the schools. And even though the schools are the NCAA in some ways, and they've been fighting this, a lot of schools, particularly the rich ones, I think are going to flood the zone now with all of these new things that they can do for their students. Am I thinking about that right? No, you're thinking about it correctly, Evan, because this is, this is the court is saying the NCAA can't constrain schools or conferences, but those schools could decide on their own or the conferences could decide on their own to limit what college athletes get for education-related expenses. So the conferences that want to spend more that view this as a recruiting opportunity and the schools within those conferences that have money to spend, this is going to be a win for them because the Supreme Court didn't believe the NCAA when they said, well, once you allow this, you're going to have Lamborghinis and things like that being couched as education-related expenses. Justice Gorsuch, who wrote the opinion, said, I don't believe any of that. We know that's not true. Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens. We'll be interesting to see what gets defined as education. That's a very ambiguous word, as we know. So the NCAA would say, well, this is this is the parade of terribles that's going to happen now because everything's going to be labeled education and some schools are going to really take advantage of that. I think you and I had this exact same conversation probably a few years ago around cost of attendance. The last major big lawsuit against the NCAA in which a judge said that the NCAA couldn't prevent schools from offering students on scholarship the full cost of attendance. So room, board, books, et cetera. And that essentially, again, put the onus on schools individually. You don't have to offer this, but you can if you want to. And flash forward four years, almost everybody in big time college sports is offering that to every single student, regardless of the sport that they play. And I'm kind of expecting in some ways th- this to go the same route. Yeah, I do. And, and Evan, I also think some schools are going to test the definition of education. Mm. I think we're going to see some creative applications of educational benefits that some smart folks within athletic offices or, or other parts of a university could say, well, this is kind of education. The, you know, use of a car, it's, it's showing auto racing. I mean, who, who knows what they're going to come up with? So it's going to be really interesting to see the testing of these limits. We are chatting with Mike McCann, Sportico's legal expert. And Mike, you know who's really going to celebrate? This is all the lightweight football players out there at places like Princeton. The, the guys that battled it out with Eben Novi Williams back in the day, they're the ones that are going to get these big dollar contracts and endorsements. And they're, they're the ones. Seriously, though, Mike. Finally. Wh- where do we go from here? How fast do, or do we see chains? What, yeah, what's the implementation? We know that there's like the states have a patchwork uh, of rules going on and some people are saying we'd rather have a national framework. I mean, I believe you were one of them. So what's next? Where do we stand? And how do you think this plays out now? Yeah, so July 1 is going to come and in, in, in at least six states, players will be able to sign endorsement deals and sponsorships and those types of things. So that's one immediate change coming up. In terms of how quickly the changes are going to be felt, I think this ruling, the fact that it occurred before July 1 is important because it now says the athletic departments, get your act together, figure out what you want to do. How are you going to govern the freedom that athletes are now going to have, at least with regard to education-related expenses? I also think we're going to see some pushback from some constituencies within schools. Those who are, those who are worried about the commercialization of college sports and the impact on education are going to say, we're going to see exploitation of this by everything being labeled education. So I, I think it's going to happen quickly. And, and as Evan, Emily, uh, Daniel, and others have written, we know that some schools have already reached out to companies to oversee 
these new changes. Now, not necessarily the Alston case, more NIL, but I'm sure they'll be brought into the conversation on this as well, because schools, this is goes to the heart of the case, right? Let schools compete. Let them be inventive. Let them try to jockey for best position to get the best recruit. That's what they do for coaches. That's what they do for other staff. Why not let them do that for athletes? Right, I'm going to ask you a question that perhaps you cannot answer, but at the core of its argument before the court was sort of this notion of this clinging to amateurism, right? And it was pretty clear early on that like the court didn't seem to be buying it. Like, why are we here, Mike? Did the NCAA, its member institutions, really, do they really believe this notion of amateurism while multi-billion dollar TV contracts are being signed uh, as skyrocketing coaching salaries, as a, this race for the next palatial practice facility happens? Did they really believe, believe that? Or was it just really the last grasp of clinging onto a system that made a lot of people very wealthy? I think they believe at least some parts of it. I think they really believe that this is all a system designed to nurture young men and women who are college students who play a sport. I really think that that belief is, still exists at the NCAA and still exists at some schools where it may be more true than others. At schools where athletics aren't generating a ton, ton of money, it might be a more persuasive point. But I think it was clear that public opinion has shifted. And, and Scott, the fact that the justices were talking about things that really weren't in the case. So Justice Clarence Thomas said that this was really telling. He started talking about college coaches' salaries. That's not what this case is about at all. In fact, that was already decided 25 years ago. He gravitated towards that. I think it was clearly a sign that he looks at all of this and says, this doesn't make sense. And once the court takes that position, it's really hard to unwind that with narrow antitrust arguments that clearly didn't work. So that's when everybody at the NC starts looking at each other and say, wait a minute, whose decision was it to appeal? Who said we should appeal? Who said appeal? <laughs> right? yeah. parents, I'm saying, was it you? Did you say appeal? I didn't say appeal. <laughs> you got, I'm sure there's going to be blame to go around that they made that decision. And they, they lost the O'Bannon case as well. I mean, they have a record now of losing big cases. And this was an unnecessary case for them because for years, Scott, they've latched on to a 1984 Supreme Court decision, the Board of Regents case, which wasn't about college athletes. It was about TV contracts. And they actually lost, the NCAA actually lost that case. But within that case, Justice Stevens wrote, essentially, we got to defer to the NCAA when it comes to athletes. Here, the Supreme Court said, give me a break. That case had nothing to do with athletes. And that is no longer precedent for the NCAA. They use that case all the time. It's now gone. So given, given that that is, is gone, I mean, I'll read something real quick from Kavanaugh's, uh, Justice Kavanaugh's uh, opinion earlier today. The NCA's business model would be flatly illegal in almost any other industry in America. Mike, am I correct in thinking that there are probably antitrust lawyers around the country now who are licking their chops about the, the next shot that can be taken at the NCAA? I mean, losing that precedent, as you just said, and having justices outright saying that the business model would, would be illegal in other industries makes me sound like there is potentially a bigger challenge coming that unlike this one could actually be kind of the fundamental change in amateurism that a lot of people are, are, are hoping and, and waiting for. Yeah. And I was talking to a lawyer about this earlier where it really seems like an antitrust lawyer uh, who, who said, so this is, this is opening the door to, to, every lawsuit against amateurism rules, because clearly the Supreme Court isn't persuaded by them. I mean, Justice Gorsuch, his opinion w was so critical. And then, as you noted, Justice Kavanaugh, the concurring opinion was a takedown. It was like a sack of 
NCAA rules and just the ideology of the NCAA. It's a concurring opinion, so it's not binding precedent, but it's going to be cited. You can be sure of that. So yeah, Evan, I, I think this is going to be open season on NCAA. There's blood in the water. Hey, yeah. hey Evan, Evan, did you, did you just hear our headline for this, by the way? You know, people don't know how this works. When we're done, we're like, all right, what headline do we put on the podcast? Uh, Mike McCann, it was a takedown. I love it. <laughs> I, think, I think we can go with that. It is a takedown. And, and here's the thing, antitrust cases have treble damages. So whatever the damages are, multiply by three. And the attorneys, I mean, not to say this is what it's about, but if you're a lawyer, damages are really important because it justifies taking the case in, in many cases. So they're going to look at this as a way of making money, and that's going to be joined with the desire for reform. Yeah, it's going to be uh, interesting times ahead. Mike, you say interesting times ahead when you take treble damages. I mean, like that was like the NFL, USFL, but that was like a $1 thing. So that like treble is three bucks, no big deal. What kind of money are we talking about? Oh, I, I think we'll, we've already seen uh, litigation over past damages, the unresolved litigation over past damages for not giving athletes name, image, and likeness. We now could see damages. Any NCAA rule that limits what a college athlete can get from his or her school could be the basis of damages. So if you say Alabama football players, what would they be getting if schools could, if Alabama could have recruited them and given them the value of that recruiting, right? So when Nick Saban gets recruited by schools, obviously he's getting a ton of money. Most college athletes wouldn't get that, but they'd get more than a full ride, more than the full cost of attendance, more than a grant and aid. That's where the money could be. And if you start, if you have a class action and all of these players join hands, it could be billions of dollars conceivably uh, based on what they could have gotten if they had received the fruits of the recruiting. Is there a statute of limitations on that? Or is that anybody who played athletics at any school in the past 50 years? There, there are statute of limitations. So it would, it would cut the window off, but it's a period of years, not months. So it would capture a lot of people. And Mike, let me ask what may be construed as a naive question. But I, I have often wondered this with the NCAA. Couldn't this have all been avoided? Oh, easily, Scott. This, this, is, this is unnecessary damage. This is friendly fire, whatever phrase you want to put to it. Because the NCAA, especially, and it began, Scott, with name, image, it began with the O'Bannon case. If they had simply settled with O'Bannon and modified their rules to allow for name, image, likeness. I don't think we see cases like this. They like, give, all, me some full, give me some full disclosure there, Mike, though. You were involved in that case. Yeah, I, I, I worked with Ed O'Bannon on his book. So a- absolutely, right? So I'm, I'm not coming in this uh, maybe as a neutral observer with regard to the O'Bannon case, but I would say that that case was an opportunity for the NCAA to make what in hindsight now look like modest reforms, but by pushing it off, by fighting it, they created incentives for other lawyers to bring cases. So we saw the Alston case surface. Uh, we saw the, the House case surface, which is coming, uh, which is ongoing. So there are, there are a bunch of cases that emanated from the first one. If they had reform, uh, I don't think they would be before Congress. I don't think they would be subject to Supreme Court rulings where they lose 9 nothing and get embarrassed. This is, this is leadership, honestly, Scott. I, a more pragmatic person in charge, I think, would have led to a different outcome. And on that topic, Michael, uh, back in April, the Biden administration tapped Don Remy, who was the NCAA's number two and, and their chief legal officer, uh, to be the, uh, I believe, the deputy secretary of the VA. 
I don't know how much you know about kind of the inner working of the NCAA from a legal standpoint, but, but when you lose kind of in the middle of all this, the person who's been essentially the architect of your legal strategy uh, for the past number of years, how much does that complicate things for the NCAA as it thinks about what, what's next from a legal standpoint? Yeah, so the NCAA, this came up a little bit during the, the Senate hearing, particularly in regard to whether the NCAA would go to court to challenge name, image, and likeness rules. And Mark Emberett said, well, this is a membership organization. I don't make any decisions unilaterally. So it was this idea that there's this committee of people that are making these important legal decisions. But, but you're right, Evan, to lose Donald Remedy, the, the architect, probably at least to some extent, of their legal strategy. Now, I do think the law firms involved also played a, an instrumental role, though I would say, and I say this as a lawyer, when you have lawyers make decisions, remember that lawyers have incentives to litigate, right? I mean, this is part of the nature of, of the business. So I, I don't know if, if a different person in charge of the NCAA's legal affairs would have led to different advice. I think it's possible. Clearly, the path they picked proved to be the wrong one. All right, that's Sportico's Mike McCann on the SCOTUS takedown of the NCAA. Mike, thanks so much for taking a few minutes. Thanks for having me. I got to say, Eben, I, I love having Mike McCann on. I love having him on staff. I love having conversations with him. When you have the smartest guy in the room, it's easy to just shut your mouth or ask the questions. Was there any stone unturned there? I mean, how good was that? No, it was, it was thorough. And, and the funny thing is, if Michael wasn't on staff, I think we'd be trying to call him for, for comment as soon, as, exactly the, uh, what we used as, soon to do. as the news came out. Exactly. So, yeah, certainly Remember when and, you and I used to, do you remember the days when like, we'd be discussing on the old, the old podcast, um, Law Matters, and I'd be like, I'll tell you what I think after I hear what Mike McCann thinks? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I think he, 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 he struck exactly the right tone of reason about what exactly this means. I think there's oftentimes, especially when you get a 9-0 ruling, there's people who want to take it to the absolute extreme and be hyperbolic about everything is changing. The NCAA is dead now. And while that may certainly be, be true in the future, and, and, and we may look back on this as a precedent that, that kind of opened the door for that. You know, he said it's open season on the NCAA after this. The truth is that this ruling specifically probably has more, there's more emphasis on the future than it does on, on, on exactly what was decided in, in this case specifically. Yeah, the, the NCAA gambled on a uh, on an appeal in law. Speaking of of gambling. Oh, I nice. am sitting here. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we love our segues. I'm sitting here in Las Vegas for the uh, National Lacrosse League announcement of its expansion team. Uh, very interesting ownership group. Uh, Brooklyn Nets owner Joe Tai uh, has brought in some big names to join him. How about number 99, Wayne Gretzky, greatest hockey player of all time? And I, I hope I don't get in trouble from you know people on Twitter and the like for saying that, you know, uh, in my opinion, Gretzky. Uh, Steve Nash, coach of the Brooklyn Nets, which of course also uh, in the Joe Ty portfolio, and Dustin Johnson, the golfer, who happens to be Gretzky's son-in-law. But that for lacrosse, that is a pretty interesting uh, trio of owners that is sure to get attention. Yeah, I think if you're the NLL, this is exactly the kind of ownership group you want to see. It's it's a established uh, billionaire in Joe Tai who has a lot of uh, a, a lot of sports assets around the country, including another NLL team. He's an investor in the in the PLL, the Outdoor League. He has the Nets. He has the Barclays Center. He has the Nets Development League. He has the New York Liberty. I'm sure there's a few other LAFC equity stake. I'm sure there's others that I'm forgetting. Uh, he is exactly the kind of ownership you want. And then, as we've talked about many times, Scott, the the addition of 
specific celebrities around. We talked about it last week with Al Tylus about his ownership group down at Nakaxa. There is a benefit, particularly from a social media and from an exposure standpoint, to having some big names as part of your ownership group. And who better? You know, in, in the lacrosse world, box lacrosse, indoor lacrosse is extremely popular in Canada. And you have maybe the two most famous Canadian athletes of the past 30 years. They seem like a really good pairing uh, to mix with this team. Yeah, I spent some time with Joe and Wayne. Um, and from Joe's perspective, it was uh, the chance to utilize this team as a testing ground for all things tech, for sports betting, because obviously these are things you're going to want to bring to the Big Four League. And right now, one of his stakes, of course, is the Brooklyn Nets. And you can try things here that you cannot try at the NBA level and see if it works and see how the fans respond and see if it gains traction. And I'm sure that's what he will do. Uh, as for Gretz, uh, I love the fact that he played box lacrosse growing up. You said it's it's popular. I didn't know. I know it was popular in Canada. The winter national sport of Canada is hockey. The summer national sport of Canada is lacrosse. And Wayne played box lacrosse and baseball growing up. And by the way, everybody knows that my son plays hockey. Uh, I was very happy to hear Wayne scold all the parents who are putting their kids on the ice throughout the summer. I told him I yanked my kid off the ice for three and a half months so he could play baseball, do something else. And he said, when I was growing up, I took the skates off uh, on, in April and I didn't put them back on again until Labor Day. Listen to the man, folks. It didn't hurt his career any to give his kid some rest. Let him go play or watch some box lacrosse in Las Vegas. All right. Is, is that good enough? There you go. Yeah. And, 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 and one other thing here before we change topics, Scott, that I just want to bring up, you mentioned at the beginning, Steve Nash is the head coach of the Nets, which Joe Ty owns. It, 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 should we be thinking anything about that? Is, is that weird or strange that the, the head coach of, uh, of one team is investing alongside his owner in a different sports endeavor? Can you think of any other situations in which that's uh, something similar like that? I can't think of up? a coach, you know, some executives yet, but a coach, I mean, is it a, is it a strained relationship? I mean, I'm just saying we moved out, something goes wrong. Uh, they have a parting of the ways and yet you're still, you know, business partners on another endeavor. Um, I guess there's no inherent conflict of interest, so I, I don't see a problem with it other than both recognizing that down the road there could perhaps be an awkward situation, but knowing Joe and knowing what I know of Steve, they are both obviously fully cognizant of, of such a possibility and, and don't foresee any problems arising. Got it. Let's move to, to a second topic before we go. Fanatics, the world's largest seller of licensed sports apparel, made a pretty big hire this week. Some news that we broke over at Sportico. Tucker Kane, longtime Dodgers executive, also a, a former executive at Guggenheim, is moving over from the Dodgers to Fanatics. His role, from what I've been told, he's going to be in charge of expanding Fanatics into new verticals. We can hypothesize about what that might mean, but it certainly sounds as though Fanatics is not satisfied with just being the dominant force in apparel and merchandise and is looking for ways to kind of flex its muscle in other parts of the sports ecosystem. I, I love it because you're only as good as your people and we're not sure how he'll be utilized. But like you said, the fact we know that Michael Rubin is a beast. We know that Michael Rubin is sort of the energizer bunny. We know that Michael Rubin is looking at what else can I do in sports? What's hot? Um, how can I capitalize on, on, on tech? How can I capitalize on what other people are thinking, where we're headed? Uh, to bring it back to Gretzky, right? Go to where the puck is going to be, not where it is. Michael Rubin skates to where the puck is going to be. 
And I think having a guy like Tucker Gain, who was running a lot of the revenue stuff on this, uh, the the incubator on behalf of the Dodgers, things like that, having a guy like Tucker can only help him get there. Yeah, Michael Rubin kind of showed his hand a little bit uh, about a month ago when uh, amid the furor of NFT, he teamed up with Michael Novogratz and Gary Vaynerchuk to launch Candy Digital, which is a sports NFT company that is majority owned by Fanatics. I think that's an example of the kind of things that that that, that Fanatics is now looking into. It's, it's, it's beyond, we have a user base of, of 80 million sports fans who are comfortable shopping with us. We know a lot about them. We know where they live. We know what they like. Um, and we have relationships, obviously, with almost every major U.S. league, almost every major U.S. team. That is a recipe to probably make a big impact in a lot of other areas. Uh, so kind of shooting off the hip here and, and hypothesizing, Scott, but sports betting certainly seems like an area. Uh, ticketing also seems like another area where just because of the kind of synergies with the business that exists already, I would not be shocked to see Fanatics maybe doing some work in in the future. All right, you get the final word. He is Eben Novi Williams on the Twitter at Novi underscore Williams. I am Scott Soshnik in Las Vegas on the Twitter at Soshnik Core Veltman Social Media Coordinator would like me to remind you that the show is at Sportacast, which is the hub of what will soon, I promise, become the Sportico Podcast Network.